This is Context Matters, and I am your host, Cindy Parker. For some people, biblical context is all about the literary shape of the text. And I agree with that, but my primary instinct is always to look first at the physical geography and culture from which narratives emerge. I think this kind of study tends to uncover hidden details that are not at all obvious when we read sacred text. In addition, they influence the literary shape of the narratives. Let me be clear, I am not at all dismissing the literary richness of the Bible. I love that part, and I make my students study that part. But I am convinced that there are hidden gems within the process of investigating context first. In this week's episode of Context Matters, I invite Philadelphia artist Lisa Abaya to the conversation table. Lisa is a painter who has been seeking ways to integrate matters of spirituality into her work. Now, we could analyze her paintings as we would analyze the literary masterpiece of the Bible, but we discover exciting things by asking Lisa about her personal context. Where did she grow up and how did that influence her art? Then when we go back and look at her paintings, they come alive in a richer way. So I met up with her in her home so I could ask her about how living on the East and the West coasts of the United States has influenced her art in different ways. We also discuss how she explores mysterious concepts of the Holy Spirit through the reflective material she is using in her recent work. I start by asking Lisa who was the most influential in her early years for strengthening her artistic muscles. So I think one of the biggest um, influences in my life was my mom. And not having a lot of money, we were forced to be really creative. And I think that was the impetus for being an artist. Yeah. Um, Every time I wanted to buy something, she would say, you could make that. So we would (laughs) thrift and repurpose items, paint things, you know, go into the garden and create with what we had. So that was always, it's definitely a skill to learn and cultivate. Being creative is natural, but I think you can stifle it or you can lose that ability if you're just you know, purchasing or you're just, right. you're kind you're of not in your forced own. to really explore the creativity. Yeah. So my mom was constantly getting me to work on that muscle. And I think that really helped huh. me see the world as possibilities. Oh, I could change this space with not a lot of money. You know, we can paint the walls. We can um, decorate or move furniture around in a way that's interesting. So you don't always have to just do what everybody else says is right. cool. or Yeah. So is your mom professionally an artist? No. So that was interesting to me because she never thought she was an artist, but I would consider her an artist. Yeah. Well, she created or she encouraged this creativity within you, which has now become your career. So that for it not to be her profession is 
amazing that she was able to see the value in that skill. Right. I think we now see how crafts that women do and even household hobbies are considered more, they've sort of seeped into the art realm. They were considered women's work and not taken seriously, you know, needlepoint and weaving and pottery. All of these skills were just not seen as fine art. And now we see really famous artists who are doing weavings and integrating those skills into their work. So my mom now sees how that has a place in the art world. And she's like, oh, I'm an artist. So right. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. She feels more confident to call herself an artist because I've encouraged her to see that connection. You grew up in San Francisco, right? Yes. So is there anything about living in the city, growing up in the city, that also stimulated the artistic nature, artistic muscle within you? I think San Francisco was a perfect environment for stimulating artists. I had... There are so many hippies and people who already were living these alternative lifestyles. Mm -hmm. So I felt I had a lot of exposure to, you know, my friend's dad is a dentist, but also makes music and edits photos on his computer in his spare time. And so these people were really doing lots of, you know, diverse. Yeah. They're just playing around, you know, they had cool gardens and. Um, a lot of really interesting shops where an artist maybe owned it and was selling their friend's work. So I really had exposure to that community. And that, I think that is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At what point in time did you think of yourself as an artist in terms of an identity? I began to think of myself as an artist when I realized that this was my language. So... Mm-hmm. Maybe around middle school, high school, I started to sell my work. My dad is an entrepreneur, so he encouraged me to sell my drawings, and I started to learn how to talk about my work. So even when I was around 10, I started to learn how to talk to people about what it was that I did. But this, but the art itself was always the main form of communication, mm. and I found that to be useful because it was frustrating to... <laughs> always have to explain myself with words. I I still think that words don't, are not my primary way of communication. I, you know, I think color and line and form are my favorite ways to express myself. Yeah. Is it frustrating then to have to take, I mean, I almost think of it like if art is your mother tongue, almost, Mm -hmm. the Because when we translate even just like uh, written words into a different language, there's always mishaps, there's always miscommunications because there's never exact one-to-one words. Do you feel that way when you're going from your art language to a spoken language? I think that's one of the biggest difficulties that I have as an artist today because we require artists to explain themselves and their work so much. And I think a lot of it is inexplicable. And I also think that it's not to say artists aren't intellectual or aren't reading um, works that maybe influence their ideas, but to have them 
dissect the work for you um, is something that I see happening more often, but try to rebel against because I want the viewer to embrace that out that quality of the piece and experience and sometimes you can't tell somebody what to experience right how old were you when you made the location shift from west coast san francisco to we are currently in philadelphia so how did that shift happen so i came out to philadelphia for school i was 18 and decided to pursue painting as a major at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And I really thought that the school would be a good fit because at the time I was still really interested in classical training. So uh, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts has four majors and it's drawing, painting, sculpture, and printmaking. So it's very focused. And I thought my work would look completely different. I thought my work would be really, they call it naturalist painting or, you know, it's realism. So I, I was trained in that style in high school and always thought that that was objectively better. And when I went to college, I realized <laughs> I <love> that. <laughs> that objectively better just didn't exist right because like it's not a framework I mean you just explained that's not really a framework within art right so I thought oh I want to paint like Caravaggio this classical you know Italian painter and realized very quickly that I hated it was weird I hated the work that I was making so it obviously Mm. wasn't what I wanted what I thought was even objectively good and realized that I had to be making work that was what I liked and what I wanted. And yeah. so it, it did create a shift in my work because I realized that art can't only be about the viewer or it can't only, I don't know, some people would say that the best artists are selfish because they make art only for themselves, right? They're only concerned about their interests. Hmm. You could say it's finding an authenticity within you as the artist to express that's a more positive yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a more positive <laughs> positive way to spin it yeah was there anything about moving to the east coast that changed you as an artist i mean east and west coast the the whole like new york san francisco paradigm did you feel that as an artist and if so what what about the east coast like brought something else out in you there are definitely differences. When I came to PAFA, and I just noticed off the bat, um, environment was really important to me because San Francisco has all these candy-colored houses. We have the painted ladies and these, you know, I would drive through the city and look at the different color combinations on the houses because all the trim, you could have seven colors on yeah. a house. And that was my first color theory is looking at those combinations And then when I came to Philadelphia, everything is brick. Everything is just, you know, this red brick city. And the weather is, especially from fall to mid-spring, pretty gray. So a lot of the painters have a more nuanced palette in terms of grays and darker colors that 
are farther away from the saturated, um, you know, pure pigment. Yeah. And the work that I was making was still just really interested in color and I just loved color. So <laughs> I, I felt like I considered myself a West Coast painter because I would just use the color straight out of the tube and I would keep trying to make it more and more vibrant. Like I wanted the paintings to look like they were glowing hmm. from within. So hmm. I would practice different techniques, glazes and trying to make them have that that glass-like, you know, stained glass quality, mm. whereas a lot of the other painters in my school would layer it on thicker and it would look more buttery and slick and almost um, plasticky. It's hard to explain. So that I could notice a difference because that was just what they were interested in. Yeah. Do you still describe yourself as a West Coast painter? Have you absorbed some East Coast? Yeah. Or you've just found a happy medium of blending these two contexts for yourself? I've been in Philadelphia 10 years now. So it's really, I really feel torn between the two coasts or these different cultures. Because when I go back to San Francisco, um, a lot has changed in general in the city, but I don't know that I 100% vibe with the the art that's being created there, but I can see aspects of it that make me who I am. But now, having lived on the East Coast and traveling to New York, and in general, I think looking at art online, the language of art isn't so much restricted to location as much as it as it ever was, right? Because artists have access to all these visual languages. But I still see myself as having, um, I mean, the work that I do right now is actually limited in color palette um, because I'm focusing on light. It's pretty much in silvers, grays, and white right? <laughs> and black. So I have made a very strong shift. Several weeks ago, you invited me to your studio, and I vividly remember the experience because I really did feel like I was walking into your sanctuary, like I was walking into the place where you, well, not only just create, but where you think deeply but you think deeply out loud on canvas. And it was so moving and so precious. And we spent a lot of time looking at some of your recent work, which is playing with light. Can you tell us more about that? Because I find it so stimulating and so unique to other art I've seen. The work that I was doing before was really colorful. And I realized that what I was trying to create was light or, you know, manufacture light pretty much. And so I decided to to just focus on the qualities of light. And so I stripped away all the color and found these pigments or these materials that are actually industrial materials you would see um, in road signs. And I was driving home at night and realizing that, you know, I was fascinated by the way the car lights would hit um, the stop sign trim or different road signs and how 
there was something going on with the pigments, right? The, you know, it was just fascinating. I loved the way that things were looking at night. So I found the materials and decided to play and use those on the canvas and started to learn about, basically learn through material the characteristics of light that were most fascinating to me. Hmm. So, you know, obviously a light bulb is what we immediately think of, but this material that I'm using will pick up ambient light rays around the room and then redirect it at your eye. And so it's sort of this this channel or it's a conductor. It's not necessarily the source itself. And that was really fascinating to me. Um, So then the light in the room ends up also becoming part of your art. Yes. Like it's not on the canvas. It's part of the room. Right. But it's affecting how the viewer sees the art on the canvas. Yes. And the optics because it depends on the light source, but it depends on you as well and your eye and how that light is being reflected back at you. So the piece could look very unassuming and flat from a certain angle, but if you are in a specific spot, it'll be glowing. Yeah, that was one of the things. It made the teacher mind in me just start tingling (laughs) in so many different ways because I don't know how long I spent in your studio walking from right to left and then standing on my tiptoes and then like crouching down because every movement that I put into looking at the work gave me a new perception, which, and I loved, there was one angle where it really looked like fire was burning through the canvas and coming out towards me, which was so stimulating. And it made me think there's, there's a spiritual aspect to your work as well. And so when I was looking at your work, it made me think of when I teach biblical text, because of the context people come from, sometimes they look at it and it can be flat Mm. and it can seem unassuming. And then other people, because they're able to shift their perspective or they're able to create a broader perspective, they can see fire coming out of it. Almost that I was responding to your work the way I see my students responding to teaching in the classroom. And there's also a benefit of having the two perspectives. So it's not static, which I think is really right. interesting. Um, you mentioned movement, which I was trying so hard to incorporate into my art because I... I really didn't want to make static images and I'm a dancer. I danced for 13 years when I was a kid. And so I just wanted to find a way indirectly to tie all these, these threads of experience that I had had that really intrigued me. And I wanted to put that into a piece of art and I just for the longest time couldn't figure it out. And so I, I do really feel that this material is the synthesis of all these ideas. Yeah. there's. You made a comment when I was in your studio about how you've been teasing out concepts of the Holy Spirit through your work. Can you tell me more about that? So these light reflective pieces are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And 
I'm interested in the unseen. And so it just seems a little bit silly to say, oh, I'm creating work about the unseen. But the idea that there are these veils to our reality and a lot of people um, would call that the spiritual realm. And you could see a circumstance one way or you could see it with a layer over it, right? It's like a glaze that tints the whole experience. And that's what I would consider um, the spiritual integrating into your life. And I don't think we do that as often and we don't practice that. So making art about it felt very um, natural because that's what I was reading about and thinking about was, you know, you're looking at something, but there's really a spiritual layer to this mm. and what is, what's actually happening, you know? What is actually occurring right now? And the Holy Spirit is fascinating to me because it's just so unspoken. It's so, it, in a sense, it could be visual. It could be, it is sensational or, you know, it's through the senses that we experience the Holy Spirit. So that was something I was trying to explore with the light because I felt light was a good symbol. Hmm. A good, yeah. There, you gave me a book to read, or the title, uh, I forget, is it Beauty on, and Justice? On Being and, uh, on beauty beauty and, and Being Just. Yes. And as, and it's a real small book, but it's, it's so full. It yes. feels like it needs to be digested slowly, even though it's right. so little. Right. Uh, and already by the second paragraph, the very first line said, beauty brings copies of itself into being. That statement was so uh, halting for me. I just, I had to stop. And immediately, because uh, the theological brain in me went, oh, like, Genesis, beauty, yes. like God creating, and beauty is bringing more beauty yes. about. But so as an artist, how do you respond to that? Like, what is your instinctual reaction to that phrase, beauty brings copies of itself into being? I see that as God's invitation to us to create, right? Beauty is inspiring us to partake in basically the highest form of hope. Like I've heard that somebody mm. said this, I can't remember who, but art is the highest expression of hope. And I, I, I relate to this in that when I'm super down or <laughs> when I don't feel hopeful, I don't find myself wanting to create. Beauty has that ability though to transcend the difficulty, the darkness, and it's it's that invitation that encourages us to create all you know. It could be answers to you know cures for cancer, or right. It doesn't have to be just a painting, but it is asking us to look at it and then yeah, that mim that mimicry, right? It's it's interesting. It's it's so natural for us, but like even perfume, right? We are wanting to create mm, yeah. what exists or food. We are wanting to play off of these natural flavors and then showcase them in a new way to someone. And 
yeah, that generative activity is, is, is part of our calling. Like as human beings, we just want to make. So yeah, that's, that's how I read it. And then even on the simplest form, right, you are attracted to somebody and then you make another human being. And it's, <laughs> it's just, that's what she says that, right? It's just yeah. so natural to want to recreate that person or to want to split that plant and make more. Yeah. Art will sometimes challenge us. Like it will really look for this, this thing of rare beauty, right? Or this, this, um, it will find the beauty and then present it to us. And we're, when we are shocked or when we are, you know, that's wonder, that's, that's awe and wonder. And I think that's also something I'm so interested in, in art is the ability to instill in us awe and wonder. Yeah. If people, after listening to you and they think perhaps they fall more on like my side of things in the analytical side all the time, and they're like, okay, I'm going to strengthen this artistic muscle, uh, what would you say are really good, very practical ways for people just to start seeing beauty or interacting with art or learning? How do people learn your artistic language? I think engaging that curiosity, just being okay with being, it's sort of, it is like learning a new language, you know, the people who aren't afraid to make mistakes and sound awful and bumble their, you know, fumble their way through, those are the people who end up picking up the language the quickest. And so, yeah, I just encourage people to go to, a show that does look interesting to them to not have to like that particular work, but to say, okay, yeah, I didn't like that. But then try to find what they do like, and then Hmm. be okay with not knowing why you like something. That's okay. You know, people think they always have to defend why they like a specific piece of art, but yeah, it's, it's just, I don't know. It is what it is, right? It's just part of your experience and, I would just say that engaging with that curiosity is is the way to go because if you don't, then yeah, you, you're just going to be missing out on this whole other <laughs> yeah this whole other. Um, I mean, I, I don't know very many people who who can do that, right? Art is so pervasive in our culture, and a lot of our world is visual. So I think maybe being more intentional. Hmm as opposed to just um, passive about their experiences, their art experiences. Or even what they're engaging instead of just whatever comes at them, intentionally engaging something, like going towards it instead of just letting it bombard you almost. Right, because we are in a time that is very entertainment-based, and so it's easy to you know, the things that scream the loudest or jump at us the most, those are the things that we're going to be processing and passively absorbing and consuming even. But art requires us to actually work and maybe even dig a bit or sit with it for longer times and, 
And that is countercultural because we move so quickly now. And if it doesn't stimulate us immediately, we think, oh, it's not worth my time, right? So right. we have to actually stop <laughs> and move against the current in order to see what the piece is telling us or that song or whatever that piece of work is. Yeah. If people are curious about your work, where can they find you? So I have a website. It's www.abayaworks.com and that's A-B-A-Y-A-W-O-R-K-S.com. And I also have an Instagram and it's at smoke and flame. <laughs> that's my Instagram, I think. I, so, that's right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, because I follow yeah, you. Yeah, right. Smoke so, and flame. I love yeah, it. Yeah. So that's spelled out smoke A N D flame. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll try to put links to you in the notes to this show so people can find you. Cool. At the beginning of the interview, Lisa talked about how her San Francisco roots influenced the way she developed her artistic skills. Next week, we continue the conversation with how her cultural background also has significant impact on how she develops art. Plus, I am so fascinated with the idea of using concepts of beauty to explore the Genesis narratives, especially the creation narratives. So I asked her about that too, and then we talk about why art is so significant to engage with in the religious realm. Don't miss part two of the conversation, which comes out next week. The amazing music you hear here was arranged by Peter Lordson at Sycamore Sound. And I'd like to give a special shout out to David Horace for his generous support that allows for episodes like this to be created. And if you are interested in learning more about Lisa Abaya or about relevant resources to our discussion here, go to the podcast section of my website at www.narrativeofplace.com. If you are interested in exclusive materials, interviews, and updates, you can become a partner at my Patreon page, and that link is also available on my website.